Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. All right, good. Good morning, Mike. How are you, sir? Good. I'm well. How are you? I am doing well this morning. So I'd like to uh, talk through something sort of near and dear to me, and, and I think it's applicable, widely applicable, but uh, it's also just what I'm going through in the thick of net right now. Um, you currently, we have two kids, <laughs> one's two, one's uh, going to be six months here soon, and uh, life is challenging at home. I'm, I'm, it's incredibly rewarding. I work from home, which is great. But uh, the biggest difference I see between what my wife goes through and what I go through is while I deal with my own stresses and this and that throughout the day, um, there's there's just a clear uh, there's there's a there's a clear accomplishment and a sense of accomplishment I get at the end of every day when you know the stuff I've gone through during the day I can say wow I got this done this done and still my wife on the other hand it's it's Groundhog Day you know at the end of every day no matter how great she did as a mom it's still the same thing the next day and and that just obviously takes its toll um I, I think that's a that's a common theme I've heard from other mothers and as a as a working husband, I I really struggle with how to help her through that. I don't even know if I'm able to do that. And so I find myself uh, simply listening and trying to ask questions. Uh, but but at the end of the day, it's it doesn't always make much of a difference. Uh, she's still, you know, it's just hard. I think the psychology of that is really challenging. So my question to you is, uh, you know, how do I help my wife through that? How do I help her maybe find fulfillment or just just be there for her through that season. And I'm, I'm curious if you have any, any good advice there. Sure. Uh, from the school of hard knocks. Uh, <laughs> first of all, we're not going to worry about it, your wife right now. We're going to help you. <laughs> we'll start there. So it's interesting where you applied the uh, phrase uh, working life. Hmm. Where did I apply it? Your life. Sure, sure. What about her life? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, she and I have conversations often about, and I think it's, well, it's hard because she's very aware this is, this is my job, you know, when she looks at her raising children. Um, this is the work I do. And uh, yeah, I, I absolutely. So look there you go. <clears throat> so here we go now. That was what we were looking for. So you called it a job and you called it work. Which is it? <laughs> Depends on what day it is. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Is it work or is it toil? I mean, it is. It, it, of course, it's work, but I think often it it can result in toil and feel sure. like toil. So if I uh, so uh, after actually just after I came to faith um, that next summer, I was in college and uh, I worked in a foundry in Saginaw, Michigan. And uh, we did the same thing day in and day out. 
In fact, my first role in this foundry was inspecting transmission parts to which they assumed uh, you get a, you get slack. They don't tell you this, but in your first week you get slack because the average worker falls asleep. <laughs> no way. Now, this is a long time ago, but it's so <laughs> monotonous. And the, uh, <clears throat> you know, back in the 70s, the uh, tolerances were greater. So they didn't have the kind of tooling, computers, what have you, that, so there was a, you know, a percentage of parts were uh, defective that came out for, um, um, we'll leave the name of the company out, but it's obviously all related to General Motors. And um, so, and General Motors was, they, they were just on cruise control and not in a healthy way. Listen, <laughs> we had a car once and we bought it, it was a citation, we called it the hesitation. And... Uh, the tolerances on the doors were just unbelievable. They were just, you could almost, you could slide credit cards through the seams and, and right inside the car. And so we called it the hesitation. And, <laughs> Think uh, twice before you get in. <laughs> that's right. Oh, I just touched the accelerator pedal and wait. <laughs> um, so back where, where were we? So, uh, yeah, and I did. And I thought I was going to get fired and they, and they had chuckle and these old, old guys. Guys that have been there thirty years because the mantra was thirty years and out. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I worked in I worked in something that was monotonous day in and out, so monotonous you fell asleep. And the only way you could get used to it was to habituate yourself to monotony. And um, that's actually what Frederick Winslow Taylor, when he introduced scientific management back in the eighteen hundreds, he said. If you just treat these animals, that's he considered the first workers he worked with, uh, these Hungarians, he, treat, he considered them to be oxen. And he said, just put them in the yoke and they'll get used to it. And uh, he said the first year um, at the steel company, right, I believe it was U.S. Steel, he said you can expect a couple people to walk off the job. And in the first year, 961 quit. But Taylor said, hang in there. The numbers will drop as you get as they get used to it and become accustomed to it. And sure enough, he was right. And hence, he became the founder head of the philosophy for the new Harvard Business School. Mm. Ain't that great? <laughs> uh, so I think, first of all, what we have to consider is there is a, what would be the best way to put it? I heard a joke once uh, that back when um, the home was the economic engine, that would mean Pat would spend most of his day out there looking at the rear end of a cow or a horse. So by the time he came in that night, it didn't matter what your wife looked like. She looked good. (laughs) And she was spending a lot of it inside those homes in the also doing domestic work and a lot of it was just by dint of nature or what have you it was the children but the children were considered to be adults around seven or eight years old and frankly a lot of them they had large families so they had working hands so they were all working together but it was monotonous pretty much across the boards sure that makes sense but it was called work and it was, it always had, it was always had, it was marbleized. 
with toil. That's just what happens in a fallen world. No one ever has the, the perfect work. But of course, it began to, with Bismarck, introduce the idea the perfect work is retiring. Hmm. And so that's why, for example, in General Motors, the mantra is 30 and out. If you will enter after high school, 18, at age 48, you have a gold-plated retirement. You can buy a cottage in northern Michigan, and you can spend the rest of your life living in Saginaw or living on Higgins Lake in the summer. And of course, when my parents got older, that turned into six months in Florida, six months in Florida, and in uh, Michigan. But that's what I was offered when I came out of high schools, age 48, which when you're in high school, it feels like it's forever. Mm -hmm. But once you've got that in place, men go off to work in what uh, well, began to be called in the 19th century, the dark satanic mills and the advent of the word job, which meant robbery, highway robbery, like a bank job. And women were no longer working. And the whole notion that all work is professing something, professional. So they often joke about what's the second oldest profession. Yeah, it's wrong, but I think they call it prostitution. Hmm. <laughs> and, uh, but it's uh, a lot of data to support that, by the way. Yeah. Um, so all work was supposed to profess something and that's why Pat, we, we've talked about before this is the magic and the mystery in this hebrew word avodah because it is first rendered as work but it takes in everything like raising children like dusting cleaning doing the dishes edith schaefer was famous for um work done to the glory of god right here it was over her sink the idea I'm doing dishes and there was um, I think it was Tyndale or one of them said between the preaching of the word of God and doing of dishes there is a difference but in terms of glorifying God there is no difference hmm. well, see all that's kind of faded away because we no longer understand Avadar which was also translated as worship and service and craftsmanship and ministry and so uh, 10 to 1 your wife doesn't unconsciously in her bones, in her deepest part of her being, feel that throughout the day she is a professional. Yeah, that's a, actually a great way to phrase it. I think she would probably agree with that 100%. And who are today's professionals? Um, the people going into the office or their remote office these days. That's right. Doctors, attorneys, professionals, professionals. <laughs> and uh, professional denotes high paying job. Uh, it also denotes uh, some cultural capital, uh, access to financial capital. Uh, it's all been rearranged in um, the world we live in today. And so I, I dare say I would. I would hardly expect any parent 
if it's the stay-at-home dad or stay-at-home mom. I mean, stay-at-home almost has the implication of uh, behind the bars for the day, trapped. Because the professionals out there are there kicking butt and making big bucks. Well, I think if the shoe were on the other foot, Pat, you and I would uh, find that something about it would just go, dang, this feels a, this feels a little claustrophobic. But frankly, I think uh, that gave rise to Betty Friedan, the rest, and uh, Wim's liberation. Uh, I can't blame him. It's uh, the uh, Ozzie and Harriet stereotypical roles in the 1950s and 60s enshrined in all these movies. By and large, the conservative faith, this conservative branch of the Christian tradition just absorbed it hook, line, and sinker as, oh yeah, that's biblical. And I don't know, you look through church history, women are often amazing leaders doing amazing things. They are not stuck with domestic chores, although they are doing domestic chores. But again, before the Industrial Revolution, all work was domestic in a way. You didn't go to an office, and frankly, you did office at home. Hmm. Sure. So if you're a cobbler, tailor, you know, I like watching Fiddler, Fiddler on the Roof because you'll notice that in the first of the three daughters is Mary. She marries the tailor. And his, I think it was either his wedding gift or the big deal in his life is the new sewing machine. But he's working out of his home. Now, I get it that today, well, not today, but perhaps <laughs> some point in the future, we won't be working out of our home. I just... I, I don't, I'm, I'm a little, maybe I'm a lot odd in a lot of ways, but I always enjoyed working out of my home. And I did that as a, obviously did it as a, when I was with the campus ministry, I, I did that as a pastor. I've done that as a consultant. Um, my wife, Kathy's a little different. For me, distractions are not distractions. That's why I like going to work at coffee houses and they can be loud and busy and and uh, the gins of my brain it, it's it's distracting for kathy and what uh, one way isn't better than the other but for me to have office at home i actually didn't like it when our church grew and uh, we began getting office space for everyone and i, I just kind of go in and go i don't like this but i went but uh, it wasn't what i call the high point of my day but it did denote for a lot of people oh you're this is professional. Hmm. I think what, what your wife's feeling in a way is this is not affirmed as much in today's world that what she is doing is professing something other than make babies raise them. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're you're right on. That's That's not the cultural perception for sure um, right. but I, I do think we have conversations in this house about it and I, I don't think I'm I don't think that message is necessarily getting through like even within the walls of this house though we have conversations though we talk about work and how meaningful it is what she does here and 
how it's uh, of equal importance, etc. I, I, I don't think that still like that sense of, or maybe even that the feelings are there, the sensations are there of, yes, what I'm doing is professing. Um, how, how do I help that? Or how do we help foster that in this house? Yeah, there you go. That's, I think it's a, that's a good, really, really uh, important question. This goes back to, um, Pat, that we are, we're at the tail end of a 500 year disaster called the enlightenment, which bleached all the walls and all the backdrop and all the wallpaper of this rich, meaningful, mystical, enchanted, marvelous background that used to be seen like you go in older churches and there's all this art and the ceilings are, are just stuffed with spiritual beings. And what you, what you were, what they were trying to do is to say, Pat, you and your wife just can't talk about this. Uh, that just doesn't have enough weight. Um, hmm. This, this is very, well, this is difficult to sustain. If, for example, if you don't turn on Netflix and see it, oh yeah, there it is again. It's, it's reinforced. You go to the store. Yeah, there it is. Again, it's reinforced. You go to church. Ah, there it is again. Boop, there it is. Boop. Hey, anyway, um, see what I mean by that? Um, Peter Berger said it well, that um, it is difficult to sustain anything without the support of uh, critical center institutions. Yeah. In fact, he went, yeah. So that's, he went on to say, to have a conversion experience is not much these days anymore in fact the average american they say has about four now throughout their lifetime he says the challenge is sustaining it hmm. and that requires sustaining institutions or what are often called also mediating institutions that is if this marvelous background of avada actually exists It doesn't become real to us unless there are mediating institutions that embody it and manifest it. And I dare say I can't think of a church around here that would A, embody it, and then second, manifest it. And so without that, your wife is not getting any pings except from you. Yeah, it's, I mean, you speak to the imagination there. I, I'm picturing walking into one of those churches, for example, and it's it's uh it's like they are attempting to depict uh, what 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 actual reality looks like. Like we look at that as a view into the supernatural, and I think churches of that age looked at it more of this is what we can't see, but this is what exists. And That's so right. it's that idea of how do we imagine reality? And if you don't have institutions backing that, then yeah, how we how I imagine work is going to be different than how maybe a housewife imagines work because all, conversation alone cannot fuel that imagination. You need other things to help fuel that, and there isn't that that backdrop, like you said. Exactly. Here, let's sense. just round out the figure. The last time I read, um, your wife gets about 10,000 inputs in, a, in the average day. Tactile, visual, audio, so on and so forth. Um, Little Pat Brown is but just a handful of those. Yeah. So if the massive wave of input is in t'other direction, 
you're going to be pulled out to sea in t'other direction and won't even notice it. No, that makes sense. Just won't. Uh... It's, it's fascinating. I was with a group uh, the other morning. We were talking about this, and I was contrasting. Uh, Kathy and I, various places in Europe, pr primarily in Italy, but England also, you go in these churches, and again, you notice there's no space in the ceiling. It's, it's stuffed with spiritual beings. You know, Lewis wrote a space trilogy in part to try to denote there is no such thing as space. Your church doesn't have a space it meets in. It doesn't exist, but we talk that way. And hmm. partly because the, the, uh, if you get saturated in this, this marvelous background, this, um, what young, one young, young man recently has been introduced to us said, this is a fascinating background, is then you go to Geneva and go to Calvin's chapel. Gray walls, no art. Ascendant pulpit. Wow. It's stunning when you walk yeah, in. Yeah, that's wild. You're, Lewis's point is space uh, it kind of denotes the void, and there's actually there's no space. There's no absence of, of something. We're saturated all around us. Is that is that what he meant by that? Our Father who art in the heavens, plural, God saturates eternity. He saturates the heavens and the earth. So he is absent from nowhere. So space denotes nothing. Mm. Space denotes between the stars and the planets, there is space, nothing. nothing. Right. And uh, it's a term that comes out of the Enlightenment. Uh, hence, you know, Lewis was onto it because what happened when we wiped away this enchanted background, this marvelous, marvelous, well, you end up with, it's all empty out there. It's empty here in terms of, well, Pat's at work and I'm here. There's big space between us. Hmm. By the way, this has to do with, um, reason you don't read as much about this is that uh, and listeners just bear with me on this this is a conversation I had with a young man who's uh, doing his fellowship right now to go to become a doctor and his wife was saying the same thing we don't get a lot of time together and we talked a bit about the difference between our vocation and our occupation and are you familiar with the difference? Yeah, I think we've, we've talked about that. Yeah, I think we have. Speaking to calling, occupation. Calling. To, yeah. Right. So I asked uh, this young man, uh, Pat, listeners. Pat knows him, by the way. They both went to the University of Maryland way, way back. And um, I said, uh, well, let me ask you a question. How do you, what do you do about this passage in Scripture saying, pray without ceasing? <laughs> Great question. Because I said, what's prayer? He goes, well, you know, in my quiet time. And I mean, he's really an earnest young believer. He's a good man. And he said, well, it's quiet time. And I pray this and that. And I said, great. 
but we haven't answered the question, pray without ceasing. Wouldn't that occupy all your time? He goes, I never thought about that. I said, uh, so you're being willfully disobedient to the Lord? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the voice of experience here. (laughs) And uh, I said, I want you to think about in this regard. Teresa of Avila said, prayer is desiring God. If you desire God unceasingly, you pray unceasingly. Now, there could be different forms of prayer that occupy your time. And so I ask him, is your wife ever, ever leave your thoughts? He said, no. That's right. It can be, it's been demonstrated. You can actually be conscious of about four to five things simultaneously. Um, so I am always consciously aware and desire, Kathy. That's part of my vocation. And so I can love her unceasingly because I'm aware of her unceasingly. But does she occupy the highest attention at every moment? Not when I'm handling a chainsaw. (laughs) Or when you are trying to completely clean out a poopy diaper. A little attention pays off, <laughs> but your never your attention is not either or. It's not hundred percent on here. And Pat, who's Pat? And unless we can get back to that, there is a sense that as you change poopy diapers and clean up messes and say, "Oh, I remember the good old days when I used to work out." Yeah, it gets pretty monotonous and also just feels isolated because there's a sense of uh, life has all these spaces. And um, it doesn't. Now, for some people, they would say, Oh man, that's just too like that's too mystical, or someone. I love people say, "Oh, that's just too esoteric," or "That's too uh, ethereal." And I want to suggest to you to go back and read Song of Solomon, because there you do have a picture of a husband and wife, also probably denoting. Jesus and his church, and it is slow, sensuous, love-making. But it's pretty, oh, that's so abstract and ethereal. It's not very efficient, by the way. You can make a baby in about two minutes. Um, What's going on there? That's love. And love... When people say, this is so ethereal, I go, well, what do you think love is? Hmm. Is love, honey, I'm happy to say this morning that we have 15 minutes on our schedule from 2 to 2.15. <laughs> now, that is love. But but um, the same gum-chomping smacking that I hear often in the business world, 
Let's get practical. I just want to say, you go home and talk to your wife that way. That's what happened when work is no longer a cottage industry. We play by a set of rules in the in the business day that you don't play by during during the uh, when you're at home. For example, you don't sit down and say, "We're going to have a value seminar here today, hon. We're going to work through our values and ask, what is the value proposition for our marriage?" She'd haul off and slug you. Wake up. <laughs> What's the matter with you? She hand you a baby and say, here's a value proposition. <laughs> you know, and start to talk about children. You know, these are, was little Johnny an asset today or? <laughs> Liability. <laughs> or li let's measure that. <laughs> and uh, our running joke is uh, after an adamant leave for the first time when they make love, afterward Adam pulls out a cigarette and lights it and hands it to her and says, so how does this apply to our life? <laughs> oh, <laughs> you no. can see that once you lose this background, everything, unless you begin to see it again, you don't hear the absurdity. And of course it is. Well, I just hate that uh, esoteric, ethereal, and these words have become pejorative. Small wonder that a high percentage of marriages now are called plateaued. Hmm. And it begins within four years of the average marriage. What's a plateaued marriage? It just flattens out, stops growing. It's kind of that dull, same routine. Mm, very good. It's like B.B. King. The thrill is gone. But especially in the conservative traditions, more than the liberal Christian traditions, the couples stay together for the sake of appearance. And uh, COVID, by the way, has once again cracked open that facade as well. I was reading in the UK, divorce applications are up significantly. Yeah, I've heard that. And I'm sure they are in the States. I wouldn't know for sure, but I bet you they are. And it has to do with um, probably anyway, one of the other spouse being home all day and going, I wouldn't want to do this either, but also I just didn't buy into being with this person this much. So again, for Kathy and I, 40 years in, we never leave one another's thoughts, but we don't, it's not something you have to work at. It's not a, a tire that's slowly deflating and every morning you get up, push, 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 pump the air back into it. It's a, it is, well, I'll put it this way. I think what's odd to me is when I hear Christians say things like, well, where's Jesus? Or, or well, that's fascinating. We say, but where's the Holy Spirit? And I go, I don't know, maybe I'm a freak of nature, but when I came to faith in 1973, and even when I was not walking the ancient paths with the Lord, I just, from the moment I came to faith, I just had a sense he's with me. It's never left. It's just, it can be more conscious or less, but it's never non-conscious, never like, it's gone. Like if someone comes up and says, well, well how's, 
what do you think the Lord has to do with that? I go, oh, the Lord, let me see the Lord, the Lord. Oh, yeah, the Lord. Um, and I think that's the way God created us. And so I never have understood when people say, I don't know, ethereal, abstract. Um, but I do understand because I do think that we live today in a world where we could, we, we imagine our life is a pie chart. And in this pie chart, which is not too different than, by the way, one of the ministry, larger ministries uses a big wheel. What you have in this pie chart, here is the spiritual slice of my life. Here's the physical slice of my life. Here's the work slice of my life. Here's the marriage slice of my life. And once you're into this pie chart, that whole thing's just all falls apart. We are not pie charts. Life's not a pie chart. You don't have the spiritual part of your life. And also the giveaway is when people learn something and they go, now let's talk about how this applies to our life. So it's almost like you We've got some kind of lotion or cream over here, the Jesus cream. And when now we hear a sermon that we're going to talk about, how do we apply this to our life? Mm. <laughs> All this denotes again, space. Space. So this, I mean, this is great. It speaks to, yeah, that imagination piece for sure. And, and the imagination itself, I think, speaks to some of the ethereal and this and that abstract. Like that's how we process. And so, of course, those those things are going to help fuel the imagination, which is important because that further then defines how we understand work and understand our home life, etc. Um, you know, uh, Jamie Smith in Design the Kingdom, and I think he has a, a a more recent version of that. But but he speaks to this whole thing of of like liturgy in, in practice, forming our imagination and the importance mm -hmm. of liturgies and practices. So I think that's yep. where, that's where I, I get to the practical side of not so much how do we apply this, but uh, how do we actually begin to, to kind of work towards that imagination? In, in other words, like what, what are the, yep. maybe the practices, et cetera, that help form that imagination in us? Yeah, that's a great, uh, that's a great question. Uh, and, you know, I'm always reminded of John Adams. He said, facts are stubborn things. Mm. So the fact is you don't work as much at it as you have to inhabit it. And that means the 10,000 rule, hour rule would mean you'd have to inhabit thick liturgies and the Eucharist as sacramental for it to probably become second nature. Mm. Let me put it this way, Pat, for listeners, Pat works out. He's buffed, man. <laughs> and uh, so one day our podcast might just feature Pat in a bathing suit, but we'll, <laughs> no, we'll set that aside. <laughs> so, so you are as strong as you are today because you really thought about it, man. <laughs> if only. <laughs> and you took some principles and applied them to your life. <laughs> no, I mean, you that's, yeah, that's a great point. 
uh, you you inhabited right a weight room right and in that you applied yourself to the infrastructure you had built otherwise it just doesn't happen mm-hmm. right. and yeah, that's so the hard the hard it. what's really difficult about this is um you know we're part of a movement we're part of a tradition rather roughly 200 years old disdains icons disdains um this kind of rich uh, luxuriant immersion in a fantastical world depicted not only by the service but by the very um uh the way that the the room is painted constructed even the seating arrangement and even the placement of the altar and so on and so forth so <clears throat> by the way because i think this is just simply second nature we can't get away from our desire for it and we don't find it in church a you get the rise of religious non-spiritual but not that what they're saying pointing at us and second uh, where is where do you see this enchanted marvelous unbelievable background to this day you mean like physically in in a building or something yeah where do you see it on oh, and definitely in more older ch- churches of older traditions yeah most most people i know they're not going to go they get the heebie-jeebies or whatever you know where you see it you've ever heard of netflix sure you heard of, of amazon prime or HBO. Yep. What's going on with the Marvel series? What's going on with hmm. Avengers? What's going on with Black Panther? What's going on with? Um, oh, that's interesting. I need... Yeah. Everywhere you look, everywhere. This has been on the rise for the last fifty years. These enchanted movies, and we love them. <laughs> that's really funny because I'm even thinking, I mean, they have other uh, other hit shows that are related to time, and we've talked about time, but mm-hmm. time, time travel, et cetera, and, and, and just, yeah, the different All dimensions, those pieces. That's, I hadn't thought about that's, uh, you know, our, our inner desire for the enchanted bleeding through. That's, that's cool. We can't live without it, <clears throat> but that's why it's put in the genre often of, fiction that goes back to philip reef who said you know the wider world will treat this as fiction and guess who gets thrown into that then rich rich mystical religions and it's just that is a damn shame in the best sense of that phrase because we, yeah, it, it's actually, um, many have suggested if you erase this, I think it was actually Camus who asked the question, then you're left with this. You have to wake up every day and ask yourself, why don't you just kill yourself? That's a serious question that's got to be seriously dealt with with the faith community is if it's all just an endless array of programs and planning and trying to wedge something into the side door or maybe you have an hour free at night you could do this or 
you got to find a time to pray and you got to have a quiet time. You got to be involved in the service project. You got to be in a small group. You got to be in a service group. You got to be giving here and you got to be doing this. You got to be serving. You got to volunteer. You got to. That you and then you are a mother and you have all these little munchkins nipping at your heels all day and you're just, you know, working your rear off and you and there's nothing in the nothing in the whole milieu in which you live that goes, this is a profession and that would sound, I don't have time for this kind of abstraction, ethereal, esoteric, what, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Um, but you can see why then they plunk themselves in, in front of a film and you're just mesmerized. <clears throat> you really like it. And I really like them. We like them, Pat, and you too. And it's because here it is. Here's yeah. the real world. Yeah. Well, Mike, I'm, I'm encouraged. So my home church is, is actually has been doing this long series on the Sabbath, which is, is really interesting because that's that's not something that's usually talked about in the non-denominational evangelical realm um but they they're attempting to give very uh very strong examples of what it, what it may look like for us as a church body to take the sabbath a little bit more seriously and um one of those uh practices is uh, actually doing a more of like a traditional shabbat uh dinner on friday where you are sort of welcoming in the sabbath and so um mm. is, is, a, is a pretty cool very mm-hmm. uh you know uh quote unquote modern uh liturgy something that's more digestible for people who have never really taken the sabbath or seriously or done something like that but um something as simple as a dinner couple uh scriptural readings some prayers and then uh one thing that i thought was really cool was uh, the recommendation to uh, recap the work you've done that week and uh sort of giving thanks for it and and yeah bringing that that tapestry back in and i'm excited for that we we are uh set to to do that starting this friday uh it's my wife and i and and another good couple friend of ours um that's part of our quarantine team um, but, but yeah, they're going to come over and we're going to do that. And I, I'm curious if that begins to play into a little bit of what you're talking about here, whereas we yes. recap our work and I can talk about not just my time in my office, but also my time with my kids and my wife can talk about her time, uh, with the kids. And we, we actually, uh, remember what we've done as work. Yeah. I'm curious how that, how that plays out. And I think it could fit into what you're talking about. Yeah, I think it does. <clears throat> it's actually uh, rather than fit in, I think exactly exactly right. Um, Lewis was tipping us off to something with the Chronicles of Narnia. It's less that he was trying to fit Narnia into the kids' lives. Hmm. He was giving them, "You've got to take a portal and go into this world." Hmm. That's it could yeah. be the back of a closet. Yep. So this can be a portal, Sabbath. Uh, actually, our, one of our kids was telling us that um, uh, a neighbor, they were telling the story of some neighbor somewhere, but they were they were devout Jews. And they asked on a Saturday, they came over and asked if, if um, I forget. Uh, again, we're going to think this is absurd, but it's not that they had, I think they'd left something on. And they asked, would you come over and just turn it off for us? And what they were saying was Sabbath. Now, again, what I would, I don't know. 
how your church approached this. But again, one of the great losses of the last 500 years is we no longer know why we do these things. We just know how and what to do them, mm. how to do them and what they look like. But we don't know why. So they peter out. And, but the why, which you seem to, which seems to have been teased out, is to remain fully human. Because we're made in the image of God, who rests on the seventh, and Sabbath also does denote the celebration of what's been done and the remembrance of it. It denotes that work for all its glory requires rest because now this would get into a fantastic book that we'll talk about another day but the making of cultures always starts with rest hence even the day is constructed evening then morning a day so it always starts with leisure and hence the book is called leisure the basis of culture for us, it's activity, but it all goes back to enrich thick traditions. It is always we receive, then we give. We love only because we have been loved, because God is love. It all starts with God. Hence, in the Eucharist, we open our hands as the bride opens her body. God enters and it becomes the food or the love that we then give. And the making of cultures requires first the reception of God's universe, of God himself. And hence, evening, and then morning, and God who rested on the seventh day. Therefore, for us to be fully human, reflecting the image of God, we stop. Hence, a lot of Jewish friends I know, there's no social media, there's their phone is turned off all day Saturday. Why? Well, if you do the disciplines of silence and solitude, you'll discover why. And silence and solitude remind you that once you rejoin the activity of the world, you find out Every, the planet kept rotating without you. You weren't necessary. The only necessary being in the whole universe is God. We are not necessary. Sabbath reminds us of that. 